Uh, it's good to be here. It's good to be here this morning. This is my first time in Providence, so thank you for welcoming me to your beautiful city. Yes, it's good to be here. Um, so at, this morning, it's just, a, it's just an honor to be able to be here to kick off this Calling All Peacemakers series and to be here on this MLK Sunday. And so I simply want to speak to you this morning from the topic, A Legacy of Love. A legacy of love. So before we get started, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who is present with us. Lord, as we gather here this morning, Lord, we know that your presence is here among us. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who comes close. You are a God who brings freedom. You are a God of justice. You are a God of peace. And we celebrate you and we worship you today. Lord, as we open up your word, Lord, and, and as we look at, into the life of Dr. King and, and ask how can we become people who walk in the way of justice, in the way of love, as we follow the way of the cross, Lord. I, I ask that you would open up our hearts to receive what you have to say to us today. Lord, form us more into the image of Jesus. Lord, call us up and out of our seats, Lord, to go into the world to bring your peace to a world that is in desperate need. So, Lord, would you move me out of the way? Would I not be a distraction? Would you simply let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our strength and our redeemer in whom we trust. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as I was reflecting on the, the legacy of Dr. King and I was thinking about what to speak on for this morning, I was drawn to a speech that King gave that most people aren't familiar with because he didn't give this speech standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. He wasn't standing behind a pulpit in a stained glass sanctuary when he gave this speech. He was standing on the front steps of his home in Montgomery, Alabama that had just been bombed on the morning of January 30th, 1956 by white supremacists. See, King had become the focus of white supremacist violence in Alabama after accepting the position of president of the Montgomery Improvement Association, the association that was responsible for organizing the Montgomery bus boycott. And so it was just a month earlier in December of 1955 that Rosa Parks took her famous sit down on that bus and kickstarted the bus boycott. And so on the morning of January 30th, King was speaking at an association meeting when he got the call that his home had been bombed. King says that he doesn't even remember breathing his entire way home because his wife Coretta and their new 10-week-old baby girl were in the house. And so when he approached the house, when he got near to the house, he saw a crowd of about four to 500 black members of the community gathered around his home, guns and knives in their hands, ready to defend their bodies, ready to defend their families, ready to defend their lives. 
And so what King did was he pushed his way through the crowd, and the first thing that he did was he ran into his house to see if his wife and his daughter were okay. Thank God they were fine. But they weren't the only ones in the house. There were three white reporters who were sitting in the front room of the house, and they were unable to leave because of the crowd that was gathered outside. And so once King recognized what was going on, it was at that point that he went back to the front of the house, stepped out on his porch, and he raised his hand to silence the crowd. After assuring them that everything was okay, he said to them these words. He said, don't get panicky. Don't do anything panicky. Don't get your weapons. If you have weapons, take them home. He who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. Remember, that is what Jesus said. We are not advocating violence. We want to love our enemies. I want you to love our enemies. Be good to them. This is what we must live by. We must meet hate with love. Mm. Listen, I don't, I don't know about you, but see, I can identify with those 500 people who were gathered around his home who were ready to bust some heads on that morning. I can identify with them. You come at my family, you come at my people, you come at the countries of my people, and I'm not ready to be good to you. And see, really, even in the midst of our day-to-day -day lives, in the midst of our day-to-day -day realities, it doesn't take much for us to add people to our enemy list. I spend most of my time in Manhattan. And I don't know how y'all do up here in Providence, but when you drive around Manhattan for a while, you can make enemies really quickly. Right? When that dude cuts me off and he gives me the finger out the window, he becomes my enemy real quick. When that guy kicks my car, this literally happened, he kicks my car because he thought I was too far into the crosswalk, he becomes my enemy real quick. See, but more seriously, when I think about this moment in the life of Dr. King, I recognize that it is hard for me, it's really hard for me to have love in my heart for that white kid in my fifth grade class who decided that it would be fun to call me an African freak. It's really hard for me to have love in my heart when the president speaks similar words. It's hard for me to have love in my heart when a white police officer pulls me over and upon stopping me, the first words that come out of his mouth are, whose car is this? And then he proceeds to accuse me of having the smell of alcohol all over me. It's really hard for me to have love in my heart in that moment. It's hard for me to have love in my heart when my neighbor who lived on my street confronted my 11-year-old brother and me when I was 10 years old. He confronted us with a gun behind his back 
as we were playing an innocent game of hide and seek on the street with some of our other white friends. But we, my brother and I, we were the ones who looked suspicious, so he confronted us. It's hard for me to have love in my heart in that moment. Now, you may not be able to identify with my story. You may not be able to identify with the story of Dr. King or with those 500 people that were gathered around his house on that day. But each one of us in this room knows what it feels like when people are not out for our good. We know what it feels like to have people that we add to our mental checklist of enemy. We know what that's like. And so the question that I want to ask this morning is a question that each one of you is probably feeling welling up in your own soul. It's a question that those 500 people gathered at King's house no doubt asked themselves on that January 30th morning. In the face of such evil and violence and oppression, when someone has made it very clear that they have no interest in my well-being, and in fact, want my destruction. How is it even possible to demonstrate love? And more than that, why? Why should I even demonstrate love? But before we get to the how and to the why, I think it's important to establish the what. Right? When King talks about love your enemies, what is it that he is actually talking about? See, King makes clear that his response to the actions of his enemies is rooted in his commitment to Jesus. See, if you weren't aware, King wasn't the one to come up with the idea of enemy love on his own. No, he didn't come up with that. All of his passionate commitment to justice, standing in solidarity with the poor and oppressed, and his dream of what he would call beloved community, all of that came out of his passionate following of the way and of the person of Jesus. He was deeply committed to the way of Jesus. See, in his most well-known teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said these words in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. See, King gave a sermon on this text and this passage of Scripture. And in explaining the words of Jesus, King wanted to make it very clear what love of enemy was not. He said this, he said, we should be happy that Jesus did not say like your enemies. Can I get an amen to that? It is impossible to like some people. Like is a sentimental and affectionate word. How can we be affectionate toward a person whose avowed aim is to crush our very being and place innumerable stumbling blocks in our path? How can we like a person who is threatening our children and bombing our homes? That is impossible. See, to love my enemy does not mean that I have a warm affection in my heart toward them. To love my enemy, it doesn't mean that I hold my tongue from calling them out on their unjust and oppressive speech, actions, and policies because I'm afraid of offending them. 
It's not what it means to love my enemy. See, too often the words of Jesus are twisted and abused to keep people from feeling a righteous indignation toward evil, injustice, and violence. That is not the way of Jesus. See, see, it was people, these, these very words that Jesus spoke, these words, love your enemy, they were the very words that slave owners used to keep their slaves from speaking out and rising up against that evil institution. Church, that is not the way of Jesus. But if this is not what love of enemy is, then what was Jesus trying to say to his listeners? What was King trying to communicate to the crowd that was gathered at his home on that day? So to begin understanding this, we need to return to the words of Jesus. So after Jesus exhorts the crowd to love their enemies, he then gives them an example of what enemy love looks like when exercised by God the Father. He says that God makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on both the just and the unjust. See, sun and rain are things in life that make life what it is. Right? The sun and the rain, they enrich the soil, and they allow us to grow the food that we need to eat to survive. The sun and the rain, they grow the trees that produce the oxygen that we need to live. In other words, they are two fundamental elements of God's creation that enable humanity to flourish. And so day in and day out, God gives us these gifts to enrich our lives, to allow us to flourish, whether we practice justice or perpetuate injustice. He gives us these gifts day in and day out, whether we are those who have been made friends of God or we stand as his enemies. And so what Jesus is saying is that love of enemy, to love my enemy means that I actively pursue the well-being of my enemy so that they are able to flourish in the fullness of their humanity. To love my enemy means that when they seek to dehumanize me, I affirm the dignity of their humanity. To love my enemy means that when they seek to oppress me, I seek to pursue their liberation. See, to love my enemy means that when they want nothing but death for me, I am laboring to secure life for them. And I get it. It sounds ridiculous. This sounds ridiculous. It doesn't make sense to us. Because this is not the way that the world works. This is not what we have been taught. This is not the way that our culture forms us to respond to those who are our enemies. But this is the very reason why King would say that love of enemy is so crucial. Because we have tried the thing that makes sense for far too long. We have tried the thing that makes practical sense and it's gotten us nowhere. We've tried it. Responding to the hatred of our enemies in kind has only kept the cycles of violence and injustice and hatred moving forward. And so King says, we have followed the so-called practical way for too long a time now. And it has led inexorably to deeper confusion and chaos. Time is cluttered with the wreckage of communities that surrendered to hatred and violence. For the salvation of our nation and the salvation of mankind, we must follow another way. 
See, this was not just any way that King was promoting. It was the way of the one who said of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. It was the way of the one who laid down his life as a ransom for many. It was the, the way of the one who hung on a cross on Golgotha's hill and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's the way of Jesus. See, there is no greater display of love of enemy than the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no greater display. The incarnate Son of God who condescended to humanity and put on flesh was rejected by the very ones that he created. He was mocked, he was spit on, he was cursed, he was unjustly incarcerated, he was dehumanized, he had spikes driven through his hands and feet, and he was humiliated on a Roman cross. And those of us whom he loved made ourselves his enemies. We made ourselves his enemies, but while being publicly lynched on a cross, as he looked out on those who had become his enemies, he didn't curse them. He didn't call down fire from heaven to fall on their heads. But he said, forgive them, Father, for they don't understand what it is that they're doing. Forgive them. He gave his life so that we who are his enemies might have. That's who Jesus is. That's what the good news is. And so you want to know why King could stand on the steps of his house that had just been bombed and exhort people to love those who had just tried to kill him and his family? It's because King came face to face. He had an encounter with the love of God that was shown in the face of Jesus Christ. King had an encounter with a love that called him to live into the fullness of his humanity. King had an encounter with a love that affirmed his dignity, his worth, and his value. King had an encounter with a love that invited him to co-labor with God in the world in the work of justice and peacemaking. He had an encounter with this love. And, and when you have an encounter with the love of God, when you have an, a true encounter with Jesus Christ, you can't walk away the same. You cannot walk away the same because that's a transformative love. That's a transformative power that changes who you are. It changes your heart. It changes your life. And if God could extend that love to King, this sort of love while he was still an enemy, how could he not extend that same love to enemies of his own? But see, Martin understood something. He also understood love of enemy to be the most strategic move that could be made in the long and arduous battle for justice. It was a strategic move on his part. See, in the work of justice, there is no such thing as instant gratification. It's a long road. It's a, it's a long battle. And see, love of enemy always holds with it the long view of justice. Remember that the bombing at the King household happened at the very beginning of the Montgomery bus boycott. And had King allowed himself to be overcome by hatred in that moment, and had he not spoken to the crowd to put away their weapons, 
had he moved them to respond out of what they were feeling in that moment, the movement would have ended before it ever really began. Because it would have been all-out war in Montgomery, understand. All hell would have broken loose in Montgomery. They would not have been able to carry out the, the nonviolent and the peaceful protest that lasted all year and eventually led to the legislative victory that they had hoped for. There's no way that they would have achieved that. And see, Martin was interested in more than just letting out his momentary anger. He wanted systemic transformation. He wanted to see transformation. And so this decision, and it is a decision, to love the enemy in that moment changed the course of the entire civil rights movement. It changed the course of the entire movement. See, most scholars would agree that the Montgomery bus boycott was the most important event in the entirety of the civil rights movement because it set the tone for the entire movement. It, it set the precedent for how all boycotts were going to be carried out. It set the precedent for how all legislative victories would be won. And so without love of enemy, there would have been no movement. And so I, I want you to imagine what the world might be like if Jesus, when he was hanging on that cross, said, Father, forget them, instead of, Father, forgive them. I want you to think about that for a second. There would be no gospel movement because there would be no good news to announce. There would be no movement there would be no movement of the kingdom of God. But because Jesus loved us while we were yet his enemies, there is good news to be announced. Because Jesus loved his enemies, we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is what love of enemy does. And see, Jesus hanging on that cross, he had the long view. He had the end in mind. It wasn't just that moment. It, it was the entirety of the picture of what God was going to do through the entirety of bringing this kingdom of God into the world that would bring righteousness and justice and peace. But it required love of enemy. But you see, the greatest victory that love of enemy seeks to achieve, and King knew this, is not ultimately to see laws change. That will happen as was seen in the Montgomery bus boycott and the rest of the civil rights movement. But for both Jesus and for Dr. King, the ultimate goal of enemy love was to win the enemy over to the side of love and justice. That was the ultimate goal. See, there's a, a Croatian scholar at, up at Yale Divinity School by the name of Miroslav Volf who talks, talks about this very thing in his classic work, Exclusion and Embrace. And one of the things that Volf says is he says that just as the oppressed must be liberated from the suffering caused by their oppression, so the oppressors must be liberated from the injustice committed through oppression. See, what Volf is getting at and what King understood is that oppressors are actually in bondage to their thirst for power, to their desire to oppress, to their way of thinking and they need to be freed. 
They need to be freed. And when oppressors are liberated from their desire to oppress, that changes everything for those who have been suffering under their oppressive foot for far too long. See, it reminds me of the story that was told of Jesus' encounter with a man by the name of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. See, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And Zacchaeus was a Jewish man who colluded with the Roman Empire to tax the people of Israel unjustly. And in the eyes of Israel, Zacchaeus was public enemy number one. They did not like tax collectors because tax collectors were the face of the Roman Empire. Tax collectors were the face of the oppressors to the people. And so after taking the taxes that were unjustly taxed, tax collectors would then take some more and put it in their pockets. They would line their own pockets. So after oppressing the poor, they themselves will get rich. They got rich off the backs of the poor. This was what tax collectors were. This is who they were. This is what they did. But see, Jesus one day was passing through Zacchaeus' town. Zacchaeus had heard about this Jesus, and he wanted to get a glimpse of who Jesus was, of what this Jesus was all about. But Zacchaeus was a short man, and he couldn't see Jesus over the crowd, so he climbed up into a sycamore tree. And as Jesus was passing by, he saw Zacchaeus up in the tree. And he called him by name, and he said, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree because I'm going to your house today. Jesus said, I'm going to sit at your house. I'm going to have a meal with you, Zacchaeus. And so Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' home, sits down at Zacchaeus' table, this tax collector, and everybody's looking at what Jesus has done, and, he's, and they're saying, what is he doing going to sit down and eat with tax collectors? They were ready to call Jesus a traitor to the movement. They were ready to call Jesus a traitor to the cause for justice. But Jesus had the long view in mind. And so as he's sitting down with Zacchaeus, Luke 19, it tells us that Zacchaeus said to Jesus, everything that I have done, I, I, I want to repent for it. And see, repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance looks like repairing what's broken. And so Zacchaeus said, half of what I have, I'm going to give it to the poor. And everything that I have cheated out of people, I will pay back to them four times the amount. See, that's what the love of Jesus does in the heart of somebody. When they've actually had an encounter with the love of Jesus and aren't just professing a name that they don't know the person. It changes them. It transforms them. And so Zacchaeus, because he had an encounter with the enemy love of Jesus, see, it changed something. It, it won some justice. It took a step toward justice for that entire city of Jericho because they no longer had to deal with the oppression of a man named Zacchaeus. They no longer had to deal with that because Jesus decided to go to his house. See, it was because Jesus loved Zacchaeus enough, he wanted to see him freed from his desire to oppress and to see him live more fully into his humanity. And that accomplished some justice for that city. And see, what this, one of the things that this should do for us first 
is that it, it should cause us to rethink and reframe the conversation around who is my enemy. See, if you're a follower of Jesus and you stand on the side of justice, and even if you're not a follower of Jesus, but you would stand here today and say, I want to be an advocate for justice. Then something that you need to recognize, you need to understand that when we talk about love of enemy, we're not just talking about those who are our personal enemies, those who have done us wrong. When we talk about love of enemy, we're talking about all of those in this world who stand as enemies of justice. All of those who stand as enemies of justice and as followers of Jesus in our commitment to living justly, in our commitment to walking the way of justice, Jesus calls us to love our enemies enough to want to see them liberated from their desire to oppress. To want to see them freed from the bondage of having to oppress others to find their own identity. See, this is transformative work. This is work that leads to systemic change. And so my message to you, so my message to you, Sanctuary Church, on this first installment of Calling All Peacemakers, is that there can be no true justice and comprehensive peacemaking without a commitment to loving our enemies. There can be no true justice and comprehensive peacemaking without a commitment to loving our enemies. And I know that's a hard word. I know it's a word that we don't want to hear. It's a word that, quite frankly, I didn't want to preach today. It was a hard week. I didn't want to preach this today. But I knew that Jesus had something to say to us. I knew that Jesus wanted to speak something to us today. So, so when you're with your family, you're with your friends, you're with your coworkers who like to normalize racist and sexist and homophobic rhetoric, who support policies that dehumanize the immigrant and oppress the poor, who think that they or their country are superior to another's because of race or economic conditions. When you're with them, don't disregard them. When they speak these words, don't write them off. Don't dehumanize them. Don't tear them down. Don't remain silent. But love them enough to want to see them won over to the side of love and justice. Love them enough to want to see them freed from the, 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 the ways of thinking that would dehumanize others. Love them enough to want to see them freed to understand who this Jesus is that calls us to, to work for justice, to correct oppression, to free those who are under the foot of tyranny in this world. Because that's true freedom. But when we walk around finding our identity by dehumanizing others, that is no way to be human at all. That is not true humanity. And the salvation of Jesus is always calling us to step more into the fullness of who he's made us to be. And when we oppress others, we are acting in a way that is less than human. When we dehumanize others, we are acting in a way that is less than human. And notice I said acting in a way that is less than human because even though 
there is oppression and injustice. Those who are oppressors, those who commit injustice, still bear the image of God. In their humanity. And because of that, they have dignity, worth, and value. And God looks at them, and God loves them, and God pursues them. Just as God has pursued you and loved you while you were yet his enemy. Because this is who our God is. This is what our God does. And this is the good news of the gospel. So let's follow that way. And so in closing, I I leave you with these words from Dr. King. He says, to our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws, because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. Amen. Amen.